Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. Welcome to Teeth and Titanium episode 23. We are live from Reykjavik, Iceland. I guess you're more excited than I am then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Oscar, we made it. They actually agreed to let us do this. That was hard. Yeah, we'd like to to thank Tony and Ellen and the whole CMS that have really, really supported us from day one. Not just for this, but like for everything they've supported us with. They've been there every time. Yeah, so really, really really huge thanks to them. And they decided to make this into kind of a theater atmosphere with chips and beer and and refreshments and things like that. You have to keep people's attention. If not, they're not going to stay for us. They're not going to stay for us. They're going to leave. And what we thought of is that this is kind of the most pressure we've ever had for this podcast because, you know... It's not as bad for us, our guests. It's a little bit of an audition, you would say, because we'll kind of know the next time there's an annual meeting. If they want to do this again, we'll know we did a good job. But if we don't get invited back, we kind of know what that means as well. Don't plan on getting invited then. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So before we start, we did want to kind of poll the audience and get to know the audience. How many people here have never listened to the Teeth and Titanium podcast ever? You can leave now. (laughs) How many of you have listened to one or maybe a few episodes, but not every episode? Okay, so I actually consider you worse because that means you've heard us. We're like, nah, not for us. We don't really like these guys. Has anybody in the audience listened to every single episode? Yes. Awesome. So thank you to all of you. Brian Schmidt had that confidence scale and competence scale earlier and you know, he said, for the first few years, you're super confident, and then you enter the valley of despair. So, Is that where we are? Well, we're in our third year of the show, so I think we're definitely in the valley of despair okay. based on the audience we just polled. What we want to do here is, this is kind of a peek behind the scenes. So normally each month, Oscar and I will meet up, sometimes in person, sometimes over Zoom. It's a way uglier venue. Like, we do it in your dining room, and there's like, my cat running around. There's your kid crying in the background. This is way nicer, and we don't have beer or popcorn. Exactly, yeah. but the other side is that is normally we'll record for a couple hours, we'll bring in a guest or two, and then we'll send it to Tony and Ellen. And Tony and Ellen will listen to the episode. They'll tell us everything that we said that was probably a little bit too controversial. They'll delete some parts, we'll edit it. You know, everything's really tied up into a nice package, and then it's released to the members. And we whereas- have an editor. That's the big difference. The big difference is the editor, whereas here, we're kind of flying off the cuff of our seats and uh, we can't really delete anything we say. So everything that's said here has to stay between you, us, and the thousand people that listen online. (laughs) Yeah. Now, the first question I have for you, Oscar, is a lot of people in the audience are kind of looking at us a little bit funny. And I think definitely some people are asking, why are we talking so slow? Why are we, why are we speaking so slowly? Yeah. And, and that's more you than me, because I always speak quickly. Though. You speak quickly, yeah. but I can tell people are kind of wondering, it's not that we're speaking slow, it's just most of you are used to listening to us at two times speed. Well, they have to get through the episode. They have to get through the episode, they're kind of bored, but this is actually what we normally sounded like if you were to listen to us at the normal rate. And one thing that's funny is when we're doing this live, we have to question if, if they're taking us seriously. You know, we had such good lectures the whole time. Yeah. People were so captivating. You know, you had probably future Nobel Prize winning speakers today, yeah. I would say, for one of the speakers. 
We had a horse race at the end, like yeah, the Dothraki we... entered the scene at the end of the yeah. uh, at the end of his lecture. Yeah. But then now for us, you know, this is our debut, and they're bringing out beer, they're bringing out popcorn. I, I don't really know if they're taking us seriously as guests of the conference. Or I wouldn't take at the us conference. seriously. You don't take us seriously. I would say get the beer. Like that's the whole point of us. That's true. I yeah. guess we're uh, going to start off the dinner section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're we're the we're the pre-party, I guess. Yeah. But one thing that's nice is you actually brought your family with you to Iceland. They travel with you, your wife, your in-laws, yep, your mom. mom. For those that don't know them, you can point them out in the audience. They're at the Blue Lagoon. Oh, they... Yeah. <laughs> so even your own family didn't want to come, yeah. come listen to us speak. Yeah. And another common question we often get is, you know, we do the show monthly, we have a, a good rapport, but people want to question, you know, are we actually friends? And I would say for the people that were on the plane with us, they'll kind of notice that we weren't really sitting together. And we weren't even close. Well, I reached out to you and I said, you know, I'm checking in. This is my seat. And you didn't really respond. And then you were sitting at the opposite end of the plane. I actually so. sent my father-in-law to sit behind you. And I didn't realize that. So I felt kind of bad because I was, you know, making some noise. I was trying to sleep. I don't know if I was snoring. And then he told me he was across from me the entire plane ride. Yeah, I tried to stay as far as possible from you. Now, were you in first class? Were you in premium economy? Were you in regular economy? That's always a barometer I use we for spoke, people that fly to these conferences. No, we spoke about this before. Like the benefit of being in business to this trip, it's not long enough. So no, we were definitely economy. Definitely yeah. economy. Yeah, I was How well. many people came first class? Good for you guys. <laughs> yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. Okay. It's more the senior surgeons, you can tell. Yeah, yeah. I think, <laughs> I think the residents and the rest of the people were flying economy like us. I think the next stage we need to take is, you know, you pay for that exit row or you pay for, you know, the extra leg room. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was an option when I checked in. It was 42 euros. I Passed on that? I couldn't justify the 42 euros, so I passed on that. You know, we're at, we're at the early stages of our career. We yeah. can't really justify that. We're not the, Fritz. you know, Fritz or Kevin Long stage, <laughs> so I would describe that. Yeah. Now, normally on the podcast, we get into current events, or we just talk about random things at the beginning. So one random question I want to talk to you about is how do you chart in your office? You know, some people are paper charts, some people are digital charts, some people are a hybrid. What are you currently doing in your office? So we're digital, except for when we have the Rogers outage, then we're paper. Okay. Yeah. But other than that, we're digital charts all the time. So everything's online. You like literally don't have to write anything down? No, nothing. Nothing. Everything's digital. As of like COVID really, we were already digital. We had a little bit of paper, but then COVID after COVID, we've been completely digital. Awesome. There's maybe one or two associates that are a little bit more old school. They all have for codes and stuff. They'll still circle, but everybody else is digital. Okay. So what about medical history, patients, you know, list of medications, things like that? How does that work at your office? Is it so all digital medical history is well? filled out online before they come in. Never done because our front desk doesn't do it. But so then they give it to the patient. Patient fills it out online and all the medical history is done online. As long as their, their medication list, we ask them to give it to us online as well. So then do you review that online before you go and see the patient or is it printed yeah. out for you? No, no, it's done, everything's done online. So we just review it when the patient's there or before they come in. Now, what about you doing your charting? You're charting for your consultation, your wisdom tooth visit or yep. extraction visit. They've, you know, they're, they're sick. They have a long list of medications. Are you retyping that? Are you, you know, because I'm, I'm starting to realize especially for people with paper charts, for example, there's kind of a threshold that we all have for- Are you paper? So we're a hybrid. So we have paper charts, but our x-rays and our notes are on the computer. Like we have an EMR, but we still have paper for like, you See? know, an informed consent, okay. or maybe I'll print an x-ray or things like that. And if patients have their medication list, it'll, you know, they'll photocopy whatever their pharmacy. So do you have a threshold is what you're asking? I have a threshold, you know, you know, I'm charting and if someone's on three or four medications, you're going to write them down. But I feel like everyone has that threshold when they get to, you know, seven, eight medications, you start writing this ambiguous C chart or C list, C medication history. My threshold is two. If it's a C list, <laughs> if it's more than that, then I'm going to put it on the C list. So two is your medications, threshold. Yeah. Okay. I think maybe six but is we, the threshold. Like in all, we already have ours in the computer. Like the patient has already submitted that paper to us. Okay. 
So sometimes I worry because you know you write the C list or C chart, but then you don't actually know if that's going to stay in the chart, if it's going to be lost. If you're fully electrical, at least uh, yeah, like it's already in the document section. So you're safe. Yeah. Okay. So great. you're doing six to seven. Yeah, if it's six or seven, I'm just going to write C, C chart, C list, and hope that the patient cancels their surgery date, so I don't have to do it. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> or see if they can survive a shoulder surgery. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what we're trying to do, as you notice, is we're trying to put as many inside jokes from the conference as possible so that you guys can all enjoy it, but everyone that listens will have no idea what we're talking about. So that's kind of intentional here. Now, one of the things our loyal listeners will remember is I've been trying to get Oscar to read books. You know, Oscar's not a reader. No. He spends most of his time on Instagram. Before I think you deleted it. I don't have social media, so that's a lot. That's a recent thing. That's like a two year thing. Oh, well, maybe not that recent, (laughs) I guess. Does your wife have Instagram? Yeah. Do you ever look at hers? No. Oh, so you're fully unplugged. No Facebook, no no social media. Yeah. That's pretty good. I I also don't really use Facebook or Instagram at all. Yeah. But you don't read. And I've been trying to get you to read. No, and like, and you've been promoting it. Like, we have these like recommendations you've recommended many times, and I just ignore you. I'm like, I'm not gonna do this. Exactly. So you always ignore me. Yep. I'm trying to get you to read, and I thought maybe the one thing I could do is I could buy a book for yeah. you, and then you'd, you know, I bought the book for you. I delivered to your, to you your home. You sent it to me. I sent it to you. There's not much more I can do, yeah. and you didn't read the book. And it's. It, I told you I started. Yeah, but starting a book and then not reading is more offensive than not. Yeah, it's like the people I said that have started our podcast and then stopped listening. That's more offensive because. Yeah, but we should we should also note that the book you sent me, like when I had just recently gotten married, and then my wife opens it and it says, "Sometimes I lie." Yeah. That's the book you sent me. So I was like, maybe not the best book to send someone. It was a fiction book. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you could say it's fictional in our marriage too. I never lie. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, a year passed. I stopped asking if you read the book. I knew it was a waste of my money. But then, you know, you traveled recently. I did. And where'd you go? I went to Switzerland. Went to Switzerland. Yeah. And you brought the book with you. Lexi packed the book. I didn't know she packed it, right? Oh, so it wasn't even you. It wasn't even me. Like, I'm not even taking credit for it. Oh, it was your wife. Yeah, I was like, why are you packing? Like, when I realized, I'm like, why'd you pack a book? We're not going to read it. So she brought the book, and what happened? And we started reading it, and one of the days that we were just taking it easy, and, I'm, and we finished it in two days. So I have to congratulate you. At least I read that book. I don't know if I'll read other books, but I definitely I read I still that haven't book. convinced you to read books? Yeah, well, you convinced me so far. That book was great. We're going to try to get the second one, but we'll see. But yeah, two days, you get credit for sure. Well, one thing we, we wanted to see is how many people in the audience read books. It can be fiction or nonfiction, but it's not for work-related. You're only reading it for personal pleasure. How many people in the audience read books? Wow. I'm in minority for sure here. So definitely. Now, of the people that raised your hand to read books, how many of you started after the age of 35? Okay. Okay. Some people started later, but a lot of people were reading from a very young age, which is very important. How many people started after residency? Nine years after. So. Okay, so I have a chance. So you have a chance. Are you not? Or actually, you are over 35, aren't you? No, I'm 34. Oh, so... You still, you, there's still some hope. Yep. I'm done buying you books. I'm never spending a dollar on you again. <laughs> I was going to ask, am I getting that for a birthday gift no, or something? No, no I'm okay. never buying you a book again. But listen, I give you a chance. Yeah. Another thing about traveling is, you know, as I mentioned before, you brought your whole family with you. It's very nice. People keep asking if I brought my family. And it's really nice seeing all the members here. I feel like this conference was the conference to bring your family yeah. to. It's like a perfect family trip. And it's been really nice meeting everyone and their families. I think people that bring their kids, the general vibe I'm getting is their kids are a little bit older, maybe Six years or older, four years or older. I think there's that age where you can begin to travel with kids. Yeah, that they're comfortable on the plane. Yeah. And with not the time, annoying the person beside you. With the time zone change and things yeah. like that, they can adapt. As, as loyal listeners will know, you know, I have a 21 month old boy. And I'm happy to announce to our listeners for the first time that me and my wife are expecting a second child in November, another boy. So we'll be at two boys. So you're so, not traveling for another 24 months. Yeah. So definitely won't be bringing <laughs> the family to any conferences soon. But it's nice to see the people that travel with family. Most of them have said, yeah, it's rough at the beginning, but yeah. as they grow up, then you can travel with them and they actually enjoy the conference just as much as you and you can take them on these different experiences. 
So we didn't want to, you know, just talk amongst ourselves for the whole episode. You know, we normally do that every other episode, and we do find that people enjoy when we involve others. So we did want to just pull some people from the audience for this episode in particular. So the first guest we want to introduce is someone that we've mentioned on the podcast before. Quite a bit. Quite a bit, actually. She's, yeah. she's mentioned quite a bit, and she'll reach out and respond. She's also earned it. Like she's earned it, but she, I will notice she'll reach out and respond maybe three months after the episode airs, which doesn't really... She's in residency. Well, I was going to say it doesn't give me confidence. She's listening in a prompt manner. Yeah. But you're right. She's in residency or just finished, so maybe it takes a little while to get there. So without further ado, please welcome our first guest, Emily Archambault. That's your chair. Yeah. Millie, welcome to Teeth and Titanium. How's it going? Well, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Yeah, How are you guys? Nice to have you here. And yeah, you're our first actual live guest. She's mm-hmm. the first person to be on. Uh-huh. So you had a pretty busy year this year. You were the CRAOMS resident president. First thing, how did you enjoy it? Well, this year was really busy. A sixth year is quite the year with the Royal College and exams, finishing up my master's and doing this new thing. Three months is not bad for her. (laughs) Not bad. Yeah, not bad. You were busy. Come on. At least I'm on time today. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I met new people. It was a really great experience. I just wish... I had had more time to invest into it. Yeah. So many projects that were thought about and talked about that I'll leave to my my successor who takes the, the role after me. But I really, really enjoyed it. Also, like learning more about other training programs and other residents from other parts of Canada that don't speak French. Yeah. <laughs> that was really interesting. Yeah. Awesome. Now, you mentioned the RCDC studying for the exam. Yeah. Touchy subject. We know the results yeah. were released recently. Just came out before you, we left. Are you comfortable sharing your result? Or, I mean, you don't really have a choice now, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like we're done this segment. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I'm comfortable. That's right. That yeah, means it's yeah. good news. Yeah, it's good. Good for you. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of our criteria on the podcast is we only in- interview fellows of the Royal College. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would have been awkward if we had to send you away right yeah, away. Yeah, I would have mentioned before. Yeah, no, you would have given <laughs> Save you. Exactly. <laughs> Save yeah. you the like, uncomfortable moment. Perfect. Yeah, so you were the CRAMS president. For those on the executive, I've heard many times that, you know, we were, Oscar and I both did that role in the past. Yeah. They've told me that, you know, when I left and Oscar took over, it was, it was one of the biggest downgrades. That's what I've heard. In presidential history. That's what I've heard. <laughs> and you know, you're finishing up. We have Han, who's taking over, who's also here. Do you think that will be a similar downgrade, or do you think he'll be more close to what you did? Or do you think this is just in Wendell's head? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to contradict you or anything. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't say it went down in quality. Now that Han is following me, I mean, I, I want to stay friends with you. <laughs> <laughs> Pressure's on you now. <laughs> What I was talking about, so congratulations on passing the exam. What are your plans now this coming year, now that you're done, that you're moving forward? What are you going to be doing? I'm playing a bit of a bohemian. I'm traveling for a bit with my boyfriend. We're, we're traveling around Europe, actually, until the end of August. Wow. So, so you guys heading up from here, or are you going back home and then traveling out? Oh, we're, we're staying here quite a bit nice. until the 29th, and then we're going to Germany, the That's Netherlands. Great. So we're avoiding our responsibility in the Do it real as long life. As you can. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't have kids. So we're still in that magical bubble. We're going to enjoy it. (laughs) Definitely enjoy it. Yeah. It's the best time to travel, I think, right after residency. Uh Yeah. But after that, 
like real life hits and I'm starting. I'm joining a practice in Trois-Rivières, which means three rivers between Montreal and Quebec. That's uh, great. Yeah. Congrats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. So one of Oscar and my missions this year over the next 12 months of the third season of the podcast is to get to know our Canadian programs a little bit better. Uh -huh. You know, we obviously know Toronto's program really well. I know McGill's program really well. But we do want to get to know the other programs in Canada because it's such a small community in Canada. You have to, you have to remember, every time you talk to someone from the States yeah. and you tell them there's eight graduates a year from Canadian programs, pretty much. There's more spots in Texas. Yeah. Some, some American programs have, have more residents per year. Yeah. So they're always shocked. It's such a small community. So when it comes to Laval's program, how would you describe it? Maybe give us some of the strengths, how you felt it. You can give some of the weaknesses. I mean, every program is going to have some you know, strengths and weaknesses. So how would you describe the program? Let's start with good aspects of it. Dabusha is here listening to me quite attentively. <laughs> <laughs> Take, taking notes. Yeah. Yeah. You, graduated. you graduated. He can't touch you anymore. Yeah, I'm free now. Oh. <laughs> well, definitely the, like the family feel of the program. I mean, we're pretty close to our staff, which is interesting. And there's like residents are really tied together. We're friendly. We, we How many residents do you guys have per year? Two per year. Two per year. Yeah. And right now we have more women than we have men in the program, which is pretty unique in North America in general. Yeah. We're also French speaking, which is pretty unique. And it's, it's a six year program with the MD and the master's degree integrated in the program. So I'm the second cohort that graduates with an MD actually. Nice. Strengths are obviously like major surgery, orthognatic, G surgery, now that we have Dr. Salabus who came back from oh, fellowship in Toronto. Yeah, uh, yeah, She was great. She was really nice. She's awesome. Yeah. She's really exceptional. We're lucky to have her. So we do that quite a lot. Decent amount of pathology also. And I mean, there are increasing efforts to expose us to implants and dentoalveolar surgery. We do a decent amount of dentoalveolar surgery, but implants is definitely where I think efforts need to be concentrated on. It's not a secret for, for residents or staff. I say, I feel like most programs yeah. are kind of lacking in that. Okay. I don't know about you guys. We were lucky at McGill. We, we did a lot of implants, but... Not just placing implants, like the planning and all that. Yeah, I would say it was, it was more the complex cases would be good to do more of. I think we did a lot of like, you know, single implants, enough bone, multiple implants, but really just, you know, one implant in different areas. So not what you're going to see in prior practice? Not what you're going to see in prior practice because, you know, so much of it's bone grafting, yeah. so, much, so much of it's sinus lifting now. A lot of it's, you know, now trending towards full arch stuff, edentulist cases. And yeah, you'll do a couple overdenture cases and residency, things like that. But I, d I did feel happy with the implant exposure we got, but definitely the complex cases, it gives me the most stress in private practice right now, I, I would say out of anything I do right now. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel there are a lot of like different schools of thought regarding implants and different strategies and stuff. So I figure the next few years are going to be more dedicated to finding my own path within sure. it and continue to learn and stuff. To summarize, it's really fun to evolve in Laval. I feel like I developed as a resident, as a surgeon, but also as, as a human being. It might sound corny, but it's actually... It sounds like, like a great program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It is. And also, I'm, I feel pretty confident in the OR doing orthognatic surgery. That's important. Starting. You're, at, yeah. you're at the beginning of that graph. You're at the, you know... Res <laughs> yeah, right. Confidence is high. <laughs> Don't get too confident. <laughs> confidence is low. Right? That, that yeah, graph. I'm about to fall. You know? yeah, you're about to enter the valley of despair. Yeah. Don't worry, it'll come. Probably when you get back from Germany. <laughs> yeah, probably. I'm ready. I'm One ready thing else. we always like to ask residents is, who is your favorite staff? Okay. And also, uh, who's the worst staff at Laval? Oh, wow. This is going to be easy. You know who the first, the favorite's going to be? I'll go first because you know it's sure. awkward. You don't want to. You don't want to make people feel Offend bad. Anyone? The key with the worst staff part is just make sure 
you don't see the person in the room. Like, I am not able to say who the worst staff is at McGill because Tony Shahadi is in the audience. He's <laughs> <laughs> gonna get mad at me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you better be careful. Yeah, for yeah. those at home, Tony Shadi is not the worst staff. <laughs> but who is your favorite staff? Maybe we'll just go with that. So yeah, I'm a very politically correct person. I'm sure all staff present here can say that. I'm. <laughs> That's smart though. That's a smart way to be yeah. a resident. I can't like, I'll stay true to myself. I say best staff's definitely the, but no, in truth, in truth, he's very, very great addition to the team. He's like always constant in the OR and, clearly has so much fun operating and just operating with us and sharing with us. So it's always fun to, to work with him. So you can give me my $20. After. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, listen, we want to thank you for joining us. We know it's not easy in the hot seat. You're the first female interview we've ever had. We've been dying to get more female Ooh, yeah. guests on the show. You got it. And you're first live, first female. That's great. First bilingual guest as well. So if you want to give a message to the audience in French, we don't mind. Ah oui, bien sûr. Mais profitez bien de l'Islande et de ses merveilles, puis on se revoit plus tard. Merci. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, so next we have kind of a big deal for our show. As we said, you know, we're 23 episodes in. We're in our third year. And for the first time ever, as you can see, we're sponsored. That took and a lot. It took a lot. It took a long time for people to think there was any value in the show, obviously. But we asked kind of, how did this happen? Why does Nobel want to sponsor us? And basically what happened is Nobel looked at the entire program and they said, who do we want to sponsor? Who's going to represent us the best? And they looked at the entire program and they said, we want Teeth and Titanium, of course. It's the, it's the, coolest, it's the coolest part of the whole show. It's the show. perfect name, yeah. But then we got in a problem where Oscar and I kind of looked at each other and we said, listen, we want to accept the sponsorship. But I don't know if we can represent we the brand yeah. that well because you know we're not that experienced or they want us to represent them. We need to bring someone else that can bring some gravitas, some experience, you know, put yeah, a little some shot. Clout. Yeah, some, yeah. some with a little clout. Without further ado, we'd like to invite our second guest up to the stage and our first sponsored segment. So it's yep. a really big deal. So please give a warm welcome to Dr. Carl Cuddy. Well, Carl, welcome to Teeth and Titanium. I guess the first question we, did, we have to ask you is, are you a listener of the show? I'm in the middle group. Some, but not all. Yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. you're still, you're still, and you're really busy, so we get that. It's okay. You keep, you keep giving people excuses, yeah. like, oh, you're busy, you don't have to listen. You know what? I also took a year to read your book. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, and I'll have to say I'm a 1.5 times listener. Oh, okay. Not a 2.0, but okay. definitely yeah. not a 1. People yeah. use Identify, you know, as a 1.5 or yeah. 2.0. Yeah. Yeah. The next thing we, we'd like is, obviously, we know you really well. We, we went to dental school together. You're Oscar, my staff. Yeah. Oscar was one of your former residents. Um, I think most of our audience here probably knows who you are, but just if you could introduce yourself to our audience, to our listeners, give us a bit more information about yourself. Well, well probably the most important thing is, and I can relate to Sean commenting on speaking at, I don't know which UC that was, at one of the University of Californias, but I, I too am not the high-priced initial guest. Unfortunately, the, the initial <laughs> high-priced guest, Nick McCool, couldn't be here, so... I'm the sort of second issue guest for the day too, so sorry that you have to put up with me. Yeah, but they asked a lot of people. You were second, so that's not bad. Well, I'm <laughs> second, <laughs> like 10th, yeah. yeah, who knows? Could be pretty low down yeah. the list. No, but yeah, so the formal introductions during the podcast, I think are usually a little bit more than maybe what, what would be good in person here, but getting a nice call from the audience. Thanks, Miller. What, what do you want to add to the intro? <laughs> <laughs> Miller, the constant heckler. Yeah. yeah. No, so I'm from Burlington, Ontario, so pretty near Toronto. And I did my undergrad at Mac, and then my 
the rest of my training at Western for dental school and, and residency and med school and everything. And then I went off to Oregon and did fellowship there and then came back to Toronto. And maybe following up Emily's appearance, I, we should also recognize Clayton Davis, who's in the audience too. And Clayton and I had the privilege of founding the Residence Association, along with the support of Chris Robinson and the CAOMS at the time. That's a huge, at, uh, yeah. That's yeah, a huge at an Amos in San Diego, I think. Right, Clayton? Yeah, we, we had had maybe a few glasses of wine. Yeah. And then, and then fortunately, we chatted with Chris and then with Ellen. And then next thing we know, Clayton and I were the first two presidents of the Residence Association to proceed you two. But I think it was good because it's really brought the programs together. Like having yeah. a president, especially having a president from different programs. I think it's been great. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, and, you know, we, we met with at that, at that time or maybe at a subsequent meeting, we met with the leaders of the Roe Amos, like the resident organization in the States. And sort of modeled a little bit of our goals and structure off of the Roamus, which, as as you know, have sort of regional leaders. Mm -hmm. But with Canada, each region is represented by a different program. So it made more sense just to have programmatic leads. So, yeah, I've been in Toronto for five years now. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Nobel, who's kindly sponsored this. I'd have to say when I finished fellowship, I don't think I was too interested in doing implant dentistry. But as practice started... I realized you had to. Well, no, no, I wouldn't say that. I mean, you know, fortunately in a big center like Toronto, you could not do it if you, if you didn't want to. There'd be lots of other people who'd be willing to do it. But we started with, or at least I think my interest started a lot in fellowship with doing some zygoma cases with Dr. Dirks. And then in residency, a lot of the oncology or reconstructive patients doing implant rehabilitation of those patients, which was, you know, extremely rewarding. And then I thought, oh, this is actually kind of fun. I can see why people like implants. And then, you know, moving, doing more and more full arch cases every year and just more and more implants in general. So the sponsorship from Nobel, although it might be atypical for someone with my, my background, it might fit a little bit. But it, yeah, it's, it's almost interest. perfect for that reason, right? Like you're not doing the typical implant case. You're doing more of the recon cases, things that are a little bit harder. Do you want to talk about that at all? How you're doing that? How or, I'm doing or it? Or like you want to I talk about- kind of drill like, a hole and then- <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we always do a resident reminder on the show, and we thought a perfect resident reminder for this episode is kind of in the theme of the conference and the theme of our sponsorship is implants. And you're kind of unique in that you're doing a lot of these atypical implant cases, as Oscar mentioned. And we know you do, you know, single implants, multiple implants, you know, your normal run-of-the-mill stuff, and you place a lot of those. But what we wanted to chat with you about is some of these atypical cases, like when are you particularly using all-on-four? or zygomatic implants, or one thing unique that you bring is you do a lot of resection recon cases. So a lot of, you know, you're working with your colleagues on flaps, you're doing a lot of hip grafts, anterior and posterior, non-vascularized grafts, recon plates, and then you're restoring them with implants. So you're kind of seeing these patients from start to finish, yeah. which is pretty unique, I'd say, for a lot of surgeons. So walk us through this. For these atypical cases, how are you kind of thinking about it or planning for it in your mind? Yeah, like how do you start it? How do you start this process? So we're, we're blessed at, at Toronto and at Mount Sinai that we have, again, as I was saying, a good wealth of resources. So I'm lucky to always team up with a good prosthodontist. There's a few, there, there are three prosthodontists who I work with quite a bit downtown. So at downtown Toronto. <laughs> so we're, we're quite fortunate to have good support. So we don't really ever start any of these cases without combined prosthodontic and OMFS assessment. So mm -hmm. I, I think that would be the first yep. comment as far as how we start. It would be with a discussion between prostho and, and our service. And then, you know, those are such different patient population groups, the full arch group who we have a clinic dedicated to refractory implant disease, where myself and a prosthodontist and a periodontist treat patients who've often had failures elsewhere or might be very unwell. 
and have been sort of turned away from a treatment at another center, often from us offices, you know, a few hours away. So do you might be too sick or something like that to do in their local hospital. With these cases being so different, do you feel like you take the lead from the prosto or do they have enough experience where they see it themselves and they're like, okay, we know what we can make work in this setting? Well, it's a little bit of both. I think, you know, now we have a good relationship that we sort of know what each other are thinking most of the time, but we would try to initially, you know, assess the patient. We, we almost always do some form of digital planning to try to simulate what we might be doing. And then, you know, variably we use surgical guides. I know today Dr. Bedrosian talked about, you know, maybe the lack of need or, or the potential benefit of not using a surgical guide, which is, I think, mainly time. And, you know, when you've done probably... I don't know. I couldn't even imagine how many yeah. implants Dr. Bedrosian's done. You know, you, I'm sure you have quite a setup. But for us, in particular, with these patients, where we might be considering, you know, should we do one zygoma and three conventional implants, or two zygomas, and and we're going to have to put locators on them, or fabricate a bar. You know, it's helpful to measure things like the inner arch space, the actual body of the zygoma itself, because some of these patients have had resections where they might not have the normal anatomy. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, once we've evaluated the patient's bone and their systemic conditions, then oftentimes other things are required like flap debulking, skin grafting, revision, local flaps, and these sort of things, which we might do either before or after implant placement. So we do, I, I think like our, our group as OMFS and our residents take the lead in planning most of that. That's and the great. prosthodontics, the prosthodontic work will sort of follow. But the I think where we learn a lot from the prosto is the, you know, the space required, the considerations for the different spreads of the implants, and, and you know, when we might use particular restorative materials mm-hmm. or even implants. Like you, know, you mentioned, doing, when we use zygomas or when would we use a zero-degree zygoma versus yeah, that was, They used degree. to all be like zero degrees, but now they've introduced a 45-degree one. So how do you decide between those two? Yeah, so, so the 45 is like the conventional Brandemark and you know, Nobel and Southern and, and now you know, Strauman have those products, but Nobel to the best of my knowledge, I think is the only one with a zero degree. So that one, we I more or less use that when we have potentially a non-restorable mid-face flap, like a scapula or hardware or a traumatic situation where there might be something in the way of placing conventional implants. You know, we do see a lot of patients with interesting reconstructions or maybe who've been treated elsewhere where you couldn't put an implant into the reconstruction, or maybe they have a soft tissue reconstruction like Dr. Schmidt was showing, you know, an ALT or some form of soft tissue flap. But most commonly in our situation, it might be a scapula with hardware, which is positioned in a way that if you took the hardware off, the scapula would be free floating. So that wouldn't really work. The scapula might be mobile as it is. So we might put a zero degree implant in at an atypical angle. And then we've had to fabricate some custom abutments from which I think are made in Switzerland, at least that's my understanding. And there might be like atypical inner arch space or we need alternative angulation, which has to get sort of like immediate Health Canada approval, I think, to go through the process. So some kind of unusual situations where fortunately we have good partners in industry who help with that. So you're doing, again, a lot of these complex cases. Wendell, you took the Zygoma course mm-hmm. like a month ago? Yeah. Months ago. Yeah. How long did it take you before you felt comfortable doing Zygoma cases? I do them all under GA, like a tube GA. Yeah. So maybe I'm not comfortable because Dr. Bedrosian does them under sedation. <laughs> uh, but I think a number of practitioners do do it under sedation, but a lot of times that's due to lack of ability to do, to do it under GA. Uh, you know, some people are doing their office or maybe lack of OR time or you want to use your OR time for, you know, other cases that are more pressing. I think in an ideal world, a lot of people probably would choose like an in-office GA or a tube GA you know, to do these cases, especially at the beginning. Yeah. So you having access to that is actually really nice. So did that help with your confidence? Because you can take more time and you don't have to worry about the yeah, anesthesia sure. side. For sure. Absolutely, that helped. And I guess I was fortunate to do a number of cases in training that I, I felt 
you know, comfortable enough yep. with it in these atypical situations, like, you know, through a fibula into a zygoma or kind of bizarre situations <laughs> where you might be, you know, thinking a little bit more outside the box. And, and also the other thing is, you know, if you're operating a lot around the face and the rest of the you just feel comfortable. facial skeleton, you're kind of just comfortable there. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's really, it's, you know, you have to understand the treatment planning, but it's just putting an implant into bone. Yeah. And, you know, earlier today, Dr. Bedrosian was talking about, you know, how could you put it in the orbit? And I mean, I haven't done, haven't done that, but, you know, I, I can certainly imagine how you could do that. Yeah. <laughs> the drill can skid and can bounce and, you know, it's hard cortical bone. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I acknowledge that there's a little bit maybe more to it than a conventional implant, but I think if you're operating in the or comfortable operating in the orbit and the zygoma and the, you know, upper facial skeleton, then, you know, you probably can be comfortable doing zygomas if you're comfortable with regular implants. And so you were speaking before that, that you have this good connection with your prosthodontist. Do you work with any of the outside of those three that you consistently work with for zygoma cases or are it mainly just those three? I just work with those three, but those are the, those are the main people that are, you know, with our centers as well. So it's probably just that I haven't had the opportunity to work with other people because yeah, in a big city like Toronto, there are lots of prosthodontists. Yeah. But, you know, it just so happens that those three are affiliated with our centers. Now, in the audience, there, there are a lot of zygomatic implant places. Like, who here has placed more than 10 zygomatic implants in their career? It's a good number. Okay. Yeah. Who here has placed between 1 and 10? Okay, so actually, to be honest, it's yeah. pretty impressive for this group. I've seen them. I've assisted on them. I've never done one. But no, that's pretty impressive. We have quite a few people in our audience that are doing them. And uh, now you mentioned kind of the digital planning aspect. We, we do know that for these long implant cases, you often can't do them with a surgical guide. You know, the inaccuracy of the tip of the drill at, you know, 45 millimeters is not going to be there. But you can do kind of a, you know, digilog, as they were talking before, or kind of a hybrid of digital planning and analog. So are you using like DTX Studio? Like what are you using to kind of map out the anatomy, look at the zygoma, kind of plan your things in advance with the prosthodontist that you mentioned? With zygomas, I think what's actually been most valuable and probably from a teaching standpoint for us too is just printing a model, mm -hmm. like 3D that's printing great. a model of the Which you now can do in-house, right, yeah. at the yeah. at the, at the faculty. Yeah, so that, that's great. And that's good for the residents who are working with to, I think you even practice drilling on the model, yeah. just make some measurements to see you know where we're working, where the implants might go. We probably don't do as much planning for the zygoma cases digitally with the exception of looking at a model and printing it and making some measurements as we might for conventional or angled implant cases, but that would probably be something to incorporate a little bit more. I guess my, my thoughts on that are that, you know, oftentimes it's mix and match. It's not always quad zygoma. And if we're doing tumor patients, not just a, you know, a severe atrophy, then you might not be able to easily insert a guide, which is also a challenge yeah. too. Mm -hmm. You know, the patients sometimes are relatively microstomic or you're, you know, wondering, eh, should we release that? you know, lip or something like that, <laughs> yeah. which we don't typically have to do. But, you know, for the severe atrophy patient, it's much easier, obviously, to just make a guide. But yeah, we, we, we do use the DTX studio quite regularly. And, you know, as you know, using that, you can nicely plan mm -hmm. um, any form of implant case, really, with any manufacturer. And when you're doing your all-on-four cases with the residents, are you doing them mainly guided, like with a guide or not guided when you're doing it with the mix, residents? Mixed bag, I'd say. Yeah, probably like 50-50. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that seems to depend more on the prosthodontist's desire. I don't really find that it's better one way or the other. Whatever they're happy with, you're okay to do it that yeah. way. Okay. And, you know, using some of the different systems, like some of the sort of full package style systems where you might get a printed prosthesis with mm -hmm. some guides or just a guide or just freehanding it. What about all on four in the audience? How many people have placed more than 20 cases of all on four? About the same as I go. I'm noticing it's mostly the surgeons from rural areas. <laughs> I guess because you guys are maybe the experts in your local community, there 
are all coming to you. I guess there's no one else that can really do it. What about one to 20 cases, kind of getting your feet wet? Okay, definitely more people. Now maybe integrating a little bit more of the downtown folk. Maybe they're all just spreading them out between them. So each is, each is doing two versus in rural locations, they're doing <laughs> yeah, all of them. Everybody's doing everything. Yeah, everyone's doing everything. Wendell, Regina is not rural. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's as big I as I think we have different definitions of rural. But <laughs> 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 well, that might speak maybe to different treatment planning philosophies too. Like, you know, a, a full arch graftless case isn't necessarily best, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's other ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Definitely. Now, one thing that wasn't mentioned in the implant lecture today is, you know, complications. Obviously, complications happen. One of the worst complications we have to deal with is peri-implantitis. Now, we you do... Will, you will have to deal with it. Yeah. If you do, if you place enough implants, you will have to deal with it. So, unfortunately, we haven't had a chance, and I know you haven't, Carl, to, to use newer technology like Galvasurge, for example. But you are obviously dealing with peri-implantitis. You might know colleagues that are using these types of things. How are you currently managing it? And do you have any tips? I know it's kind of an impossible thing to help with. And a lot of times we just kind of do a bunch of mumbo jumbo and pray that it works. But what, what would be your current management for a single implant? It's got crystal bone loss. You know, you're six months out and you're trying to figure out what to do. Well, if, if I'm six months out and there's a lot of crystal bone loss, that's not so good. So <laughs> It's not a good prognosis. Yeah, I think that's a bit different than if you're like six years out or three years out or something like that, or the patient's been referred to you having implants for a long period of time. So, you know, as we were talking about, a lot of my implant work is a bit more atypical. So you mentioned, you know, a commercially available unit, the Galvosurge, which I've never used, but probably someone in the audience. Has anybody used it in the audience? Yeah. Mark, Mark Sharon, what do you think? Yeah, just one case and no results yet, but uh, it seemed to work quite well in the sense that uh, when I took the healing abutment off and made a little incision, uh, there was some obvious granulation tissue in the site that I curetted out just mechanically and then attached the the Galvosurge. And it almost seemed like it was uh, putting hydrogen peroxide into the wound. It kind of bubbled up and whatnot. And then I just irrigated that away. And then, and then we used a little uh, allograft around it and then closed it up. So I, I'll find out probably in a few months from now radiographically uh, how it looks. But uh, it was a, obviously a minor peri-implantitis case for the first one. Has anybody else used it? Not yet. Not yet. No, it's, I think it's pretty new. It is, yeah. Yeah, so my experience is is not as advanced as Mark's, I suppose, either there. But, you know, typically, once again, it would depend if they were like a tumor patient with skin in their mouth or if they have mucosa in their mouth, mm-hmm. but probably doing the same as what most people would do. And as I said to you before, too, we have a program where we are monitoring some, you know, inflammatory markers in patients where we're trying to develop a little bit further understanding of maybe the immune response to some of these patients. But, you know, we, we have a periodontist who we work with quite a lot. So they follow some of these patients who are referred into us with, with chronic periimplantitis. Our initial management, though, is more just, you know, flap debridement, curatage, yep. irrigation, removal of any debris, try to see if there's any modifiable factors that we can change, maybe prosthetic design, and then, you know, continue to follow. Awesome. Listen, Carl, we know it wasn't easy, you know, getting in the hot seat, being a live guest. We do have one Second last... or third choice. <laughs> <laughs> Second or third. We yeah. do have one last question for you. You know, we've talked, and, and our loyal listeners would know, we, we've talked a lot about this Mount Sinai Hospital Center for Excellence in Advanced TMJ Surgery. We just find that... <laughs> what is these, the name? These titles are getting more and more advanced. You know, the hospital... I've never seen this label on a wall anywhere. Does it even exist? So our question for you is, is this a real thing, the Center for TMJ Surgery? And... You do total joint replacements. You do TMJ surgery. 
I'll throw in an arthrocentesis every now and then. Are we part of this center for excellence? She's more likely part of it. Hey, I have a, I have a total <laughs> joint case coming up, so I will join the ranks soon. But are you part of this center? And am I part of the center? Like, what's I think going you on? are, Wendell. I think <laughs> That's good. We'll see, though. But I think, I think all of us are part of it. But, you know, I think that, well, first off, people in academic institutions like fancy titles. So yeah. it might just be a acronyms, somewhat yeah. make-believe yeah. title. But, you know, more fundamentally, as you all know, the funding is such a key element of delivery of healthcare in Canada. Oh, okay. and, you know, as you know, it's a provincially mediated system. So in Ontario, that's the center that has the funding for a volume funded series of TMJ replacements, mm -hmm. right? So through the work of Dr. Sukka and Baker, who established the center and worked to get provincial funding from the Ministry of Health to have a set number of TMJ replacements, we're able to have a, a place where, where that can be done. With okay, so it's a real center. So, so it's, 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 it's a real center. We're going to leave it alone. Though. Yeah, we'll leave it alone. I was told. Yeah. But, but, you know, if you think about it like that, it makes sense. Yeah, it works <laughs> yeah. that way. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Carl. The last thing we'll say as he as he heads off is, you know, it was his birthday yesterday, so we'll wish him happy birthday. We won't sing, don't worry, but <laughs> happy birthday. <laughs> happy birthday. <laughs> so for our next segment, we're going to jump into Journal Club. So Journal Club is every month we look at JMS and we read through all the articles and we try and pick one article that really stands out to us. That relates, that we want to talk about. That we want to talk about. Now the factors to pick the article, it could be something that's a really, really good article. It could be maybe not a great article, but it's a great topic of discussion. So it kind of stimulates conversation between us or with our audience or yep. listeners. Obviously, if Oscar and I are on the paper as any form of author, it could be it's the worst article mentioned. in the world. It's going to be chosen 100%. Yeah. Or if Mo is, because we talk about Mo all the time. Yeah, that's true. Maybe, maybe we should cut him off yeah. for a little bit. But this month, we knew that we'd be doing this live, so we really wanted to pick something that would be relevant to everyone. So the article we chose is called, How Much Opioid Medication Do Patients Need After Orthognathic Surgery? And this is by Bradley Busquet et al. And we always do a pre-screening. And our pre-screening is we look at the authors, we look at their kind of qualifications, and we try and determine, is this an article that we'd even want to read? So what I liked right away, Oscar, is we have a combination of instructors. Yep. We have a nurse practitioner. We have a physician assistant. It passes the pre-screening. It passes the pre-screening because we do like when we involve other specialties Reputable or other center. professions. Because you can imagine when it comes to administering pain medication after jaw surgery, the nurses are, are their yep. first line, they're gonna be seeing this. The instructors and professors are from Harvard, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast before. You know, Harvard produces a lot of publications. We personally don't hold the article in higher esteem just because they came from Harvard, but there's probably some bias somewhere in the back of our minds where you see Harvard and you're like- You're like, this is gonna be good. It's probably gonna be good, but we'll let you guys judge. So the purpose of this article was to analyze how much opioids patients were getting after routine orthognathic surgery and how much of those opioids were actually being used. One thing they talked about is that prescribing opioids during adolescence is associated with a 33% increased risk of opioid misuse later on in life, so very, very high. So it's an important topic in that sense. Exactly. Yep. So they wanted to quantify opioid and non-opioid analgesics taken during the first post-operative week after orthognathic surgery identify the timeline of opioid use, and determine if patient or procedural factors influence the opioid requirements. It was a prospective cohort study, and they had the patient fill out a questionnaire every day for seven days. Which is a lot. 
which is good. Now, unfortunately, you know, they only ended up having in their final study sample 35 subjects, and that's due to exclusion criteria, inclusion criteria, but also you had to get the patients to fill out the survey every day for seven days. Yeah, like after orthognathic surgery, you may be like, I don't want to do this anymore. They may not want to do it. And we're used to having low sample sizes for most studies, but I would hope, you know, orthognathic is something we do so much of, you would kind of hope that this is the one study where you get yeah. you know, a much larger audience. But you know, they have, they have 35 subjects. They did talk about the mean procedure lengths, which I always look at because a lot of these studies, you know, for a Bimax case, they're talking about six hours, seven hours. So I kind of, you have to write those studies off because you know, usually, a long time. usually it doesn't take that long. So that's kind of a confounding factor. But the results were very interesting. And what they said is after completing the operation, six subjects or 17% did not receive any opioids during their post-operative stay. I was very surprised with that. I was surprised that as an inpatient, they didn't receive I mean. anything. Like, nothing, yeah. But then even afterwards, three of those, so 9%, went on to not even use oral yep. opioids once they went home. So our first question for the audience would be, how many of you are prescribing opioids in any form, codeine all the way to hydromorphone, to your orthognathic surgery patients, but either in hospital or for a discharge medication? Everyone, pretty much. So pretty much everyone, which I also do myself. And I'm not sure if... The staff said, yeah, when I operate with them. They, everyone, same thing. Yeah. Now, 23 subjects, so 66%, reported actually using their prescription after discharge. And the average number of doses they would use would be six. So six equivalents of oxycodone, five milligrams. So if you had given six tabs, that's it, on your discharge prescription, it would have satisfied 50% of the patients. So that was very low. I also low. find that surprising too. Exactly. Because I think when people do prescribe, they, I think they're prescribing more than six. Yeah. I usually prescribe, you know, 12. Because I'm sure many of you find the same thing, but orthognathic surgery patients don't really have a lot of pain postoperatively. They're just numb. So they have a lot of fatigue. They have a lot of tiredness. They're swollen. They're puffy. They're drooling. They hate their lives. But they don't feel a lot of pain. That's usually not the, not the main issue they have. They did go over, you know, certain criteria. So obviously the bimaxary surgery patients had higher opioid requirements than single-jaw patients. That, that would make sense. The length of the procedure, again. The length of the procedure also increased. And the length of stay in hospital. Yeah. Which kind of made sense, right? If you're staying in hospital longer, it's probably a little bit more pain. But everyone would intuitively think, obviously, the longer the operation, the longer the hospital stay, the more pain med medications they're going to need. But they actually quantified it. So they said, in a bimaxillary case, for every 10 minutes the procedure goes longer, they will take two more oxycodones. Which is pretty surprising if you think about it, because it's a, a direct correlation they found. It was statistically significant. And kind of makes you think about it a little bit when you're operating is, <laughs> yeah, the resident's fumbling with that plate a little bit. Normally, you wouldn't really care. But you should take it out of their hands? Every 10 minutes, you're thinking, oh, there goes two more oxycodones, two more oxycodones. So just a factor to consider when you're thinking about these things. Another surprising statistic was of the patients that went home with narcotics, 389 of the 525 total doses, or 75%, remained unused, unused or unfilled. Which you could argue means we're over-prescribing by 75%. But you would way, hope that they would dispose of unused medications. A lot of unused medications. So you'd hope that they would dispose it. You'd hope that they would throw it in the trash. Most people just kind of save it for a rainy day, unfortunately. But that is very interesting that 75% of people, or 75% of doses were unused. So in conclusion, they said the opioid analgesic requirement after orthognathic surgery is minimal. They said Tylenol and ibuprofen were prioritized, and most of the time, Tylenol and ibuprofen were fine. And on average, they would only need about six tabs of oxycodone 5 milligrams in addition to that, including bimaxillary surgery patients. Their ending message is that, you know, we as oral surgeons were often the first people to ever 
operate on these patients. It's the first time they've ever had general anesthesia. It's the first time they've ever taken a narcotic. So it's just something that's food for thought. So that's why we thought we'd bring this up as the article. And, you know, we did want to ask the audience if anyone has had a similar experience where patients don't require post-operative medications or have you decreased the amount you prescribed? Have Have you found there's a balance or a right amount? Or what have you guys found? Yeah, Dr. Sharon. So yeah, we had done a study actually with Carl when he was a resident with us from Western coming down to do some trauma with us. And in office, we run just a trial of what we were giving and, and how it was being used. And what we found was very similar results. We found that uh, we were giving six Percocets at the time. And half of the people responded by saying they didn't use it at all. And then out of the ones that did use it, they only used three of the tablets or less of the six that were given. So we realized that it was something we could change in our practice. And now I just use Tramacets. All right. So anyone else have any other thoughts on the article or their personal practice or experience? Yeah. So they had an age range. It, they did say in their limitations, it was mostly young patients, 18 to 33. So it was mostly young patients. There is some data showing low-dose ketamine at the time of intraoperative will reduce narcotic requirements afterwards as well. So in Calgary, we've discussed doing a study with our anesthesia colleagues in trialing 10 milligrams of ketamine versus not, and then seeing what requirements are afterwards. In our recent quality improvement study for OMFS, those getting standardized or standing toward all 10 milligrams every six hours dramatically decrease any opioid requirements afterwards. Awesome. Good to know. All right. That concludes our Journal Club segment. We'll head into our final segment, which is recommendations. So we always end the podcast with a segment on recommendations. That's how I got a book. That's how you got, yeah, that's where I recommended the book. And the idea is to be more lighthearted, not really to talk about work or, you know, yeah. academics or things Something like else. that. It's not oral surgery related. Yeah. So usually it's TV related, book related, but Oscar, I'll let you go first. What are you recommending for the audience? Mine's actually has to do with the article that we just read. And I didn't know that at the beginning when I did the recommendation is I just finished the show Dope, Dope Sick on Disney+. Plus. And it's about the Oxycontin trouble that was happening in the late 1990s, like early 2000s. And it's really, really good. I don't know if anyone's watched it, but it's a very good kind of like documentary, not documentary, like nonfiction. And I really liked it, so I think that you should watch it. Yeah, I've actually heard really, really good things about it. it was recommended by Ritterberg, who said he would call in today, but he didn't know the number to call in. Uh, he <laughs> give, him a, give, him, give him a long-distance Iceland yeah. number and he, just leave him on hold. He wanted to crash, and he actually wanted to crash Carl's segment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. My recommendation is a little bit different. Sometimes we'll throw in like a life recommendation or something that we're just reflecting on. I realized two things. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm only a year out of, of fellowship into prior practice, but I've already learned, I feel like, two big lessons and a lot of these lessons you learn from your, your senior colleagues or people with more experience. So the first is you have to be humble. And what, by, what I mean by that is at the beginning when you graduate, you know, you're in that curve where you, you feel confident, you feel competent. And then you start working in practice and complications happen. It's your name. It's your license. You start feeling super stressed. You know, they always say you have to have professional detachment from your patients. But, you know. But that's hard. Really easy to say, really, really hard, hard to do. You know, you, you, you lose sleep about this a little bit. But what I realized is even when things start going well, that complication, that difficult patient is always around the corner. And what's really nice is I find is when you talk to your senior colleagues, they've all been through it. You guys have all been through it. I can name any complication and at least some person has done it. If I want to name the really, really bad ones, I just go to Miller because he's seen everything. So 
that's one thing I've. Miller needs a mic right now to respond to that. <laughs> oh, he's got a mic. I have my mic. Yeah. <laughs> and the second thing I realized is you have to be patient, and this is something that's really hard for me. I'm not a very patient person, but I realize that we have messed up, Oscar, and on the podcast we consistently compare ourselves to other people. Yep. But we're never comparing ourselves to people at our stage of life. We're comparing ourselves to people that are senior surgeons, been in practice 15 years, 20 years, 30 We've years, been like working hard. Working hard and maybe near the end of the career, or they just have so much wisdom. Yep. And what I've realized is when you start comparing to people not in the same phase of your life, you start getting into trouble. It's not fair. It's not fair. I mean, we can't compare to Marco Caminiti and Fritz Keenley's Porsches. We're not at that stage of our careers. We don't have a boat like Marco. <laughs> you know, we don't own a yacht like Fritz. Yeah. And the problem is, this is a consistent thing that we've been saying is talking about- So we're just feeling. picking the wrong people to compare to. We're picking the wrong people to compare to. Now, that being said, we do constantly find from the people that we talk about is they get angry at us. You know, they message us after the social, you know, that's not true. You know, Vanessa from Nobel met Fritz for the first time yesterday and she said, oh, you're the guy with the boat. And he's like, I don't have a boat. <laughs> Fritz was quite upset. So to finish off this episode, we felt like it wouldn't be right without giving him a chance to defend himself. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Fritz Keenley. Yeah. <laughs> Fritz, welcome to Teeth and Titanium. How are you doing? I think you're a, you're a 2.0 listener, right? Like a two times yeah, he's, listener? Yeah, he's a fast one. I'm gonna go backwards <laughs> to give everybody a little insight here. Wendell and I and Marco Caminiti teach at the University Orthognathic Surgery. So I'm gonna split this into senior surgeons and junior surgeons as you guys have done. <laughs> If you noticed, all the senior surgeons read books. The juniors don't. All the senior surgeons didn't know what a podcast was, and thank you, Wendell, for enlightening me in that. I'm a 3.0 at their podcast. <laughs> and then I get confused between jaws and joints, teeth and titanium, beavis and butthead, um, <laughs> Cheech and Chong. But the show is interesting. But I felt a little bit like a movie star where... Entertainment Tonight got everything wrong. <laughs> and just for the audience, what happened was Marco and I were looking at yachts <laughs> that were super great. And he walked into the room and we had a $3 million yacht that we were looking at. And he assumed this is the boat that we own. And then, of course... <laughs> so this is how it started? This is how it, this started. Is how it started. But I want to segue into this when he, you guys asked who flew business class, who flew Saga. Yeah. And then you said you wouldn't pay 47 euros to upgrade. And <laughs> I think this year, how many times were you at the university because you were away? So I want to raise the hands. All the senior surgeons, who's been away this year from practice six times overseas? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give you the junior surgeon here. That so, so all the senior surgeons who flew business class on their one trip yeah. versus six trips overseas is my case. You win that one. That's a non-argument, yeah. It, it, it was bad because, you know, we'll map out the, the year for the Surge Ortho Clinic. And, you know, Fritz and I sometimes alternate or sometimes we both need, don't need to be the there. Alternators so. are just Fritz. So I try and be there every time, but, you know, sometimes I'm not there. And Fritz tries to be there as much as he can. But he wants to map out the, the you know, the next six months. That way, you know, if he's away, he wants to make sure I'm there or we have coverage for the clinic. And it became a little awkward because he would say, are you there this day? I'm no. like, no, I'm away. Or are you there this week? No, I'm away. And he started to get more and more agitated. But I realized, Fritz, you know, you coming on the show, uh, I, maybe this is a good time to bring up. We're here in Iceland. This is a nice vacation, a nice conference for everyone. Oscar just spent two weeks in Switzerland, so maybe you want to talk to him. Uh... <laughs> it was actually 10 days, not two weeks. <laughs> yeah. But I rest my case with the Cheech and Chong show here. That, um, 
that I wasn't agitated at all. It was just trying to map it out. And I said, well, that's six or seven trips this year. But he wouldn't fork out $47. For <laughs> Priorities. Priorities yeah. over here. But it's been great to work with Wendell. He comes with a lot of knowledge. And one of the things you mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, what can you learn? I think even if you're a senior surgeon, I can learn from everybody. Mm-hmm. And I still learn from you. And I think that's great. And I listen to Teeth and Titanium now, even though it's at 3.0 speed. <laughs> you're still listening. Uh, still listening. Yeah. And thank you guys for stepping up and doing this because it's not something that I would have done when I was a junior surgeon. And I do learn from it. So thank you very much. Guys. Thank you. Thank you. And just to finally clear the record once and for all, do you own a boat? I, I don't even own a canoe. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Fritz. Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks so much. That was great. All right. Well, uh, that kind of comes to the end of our episode. He did really uh, well there. Fritz did really well. I didn't realize he was going to kind of come at us or attack me. I probably wouldn't have brought him up <laughs> yeah. if I knew how funny he was. <laughs> but now I think everyone's kind of got a general feel for how the show works. We really like to do this every month, you know, current events. We'd like to bring up a guest if we can. We always do Journal Club. We always do Resident Reminder. Yep. And then we always do recommendations at the end. So we're always looking for people to contribute or, or mail in or be on the show. So or if you want to be on the show, yeah. Definitely reach out to us and... We really want to thank all of you for coming and staying and supporting and, you know, tolerating us. And as I said, we want to thank the COMS for really supporting us. And you're a little bit vulnerable when you come up with this idea and you go to pitch it to the executive. And pretty much the pitch is, you know, me and my friend are going to talk on a microphone for two hours and then you're going to sponsor it to the whole Canadian Sound good? (laughs) Does that sound good? (laughs) Thanks to everyone for their support and we hope you enjoyed the show. And with that, we'd like to wrap up Teeth and Titanium episode 23 live from Iceland, Reykjavik. Thank you.